We're going to do something a little different. Uh, it's come to my attention by myself. Nobody told me this. That it's less of a sermon today, a little more of a lecture for about 45 to 50 minutes. So we're going we're gonna to just everybody go on, go back out to the courtyard, caffeinate to the level appropriate that you're going to need to get through it. Um, just trust me. I'm kidding. Don't get up, please. Uh, wait till we're about halfway through and then get up. That'll be great. Um, anyway, cycling fans, anybody? Cycling fans? Like two of us? Get it, right? There's a big race going on right now. Uh, the Giro d'Italia. It's uh, second stage, just finished about six hours ago. Can anybody guess where the first stage of the Giro took place? Right. Jerusalem, because that's in Italy, right? <laughs> just, oh, I, last year the Tour de France started in Germany. Thought it was called the Tour de France, whatever. This, uh, they're trying to grow cycling, I guess, but... I'm big into it. I love it. I have uh, my favorite cyclist, Lance Armstrong. Uh, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> by the way, he settled. That's not in the notes. He settled with the government, by the way, so he's done with that. Um, good for him. But, uh, or not, whatever. Um, so Giro d'Italia, favorite, favorite cyclist, Chris Froome, is racing. Last year, he won the Tour de France. Then a few weeks later, he, or about a month and a half later, he won the Vuelta a España. These are three these are two huge races, and the third that really rounds the, the, the calendar out is the Giro d'Italia. Didn't race it last year, so he's trying to become one of the first people to ever win all three races in a year. Woo! Yeah. It's so cool. You guys don't understand. And I get, I get into the minutia of it. I care so deeply, like, okay, who's racing? BMC, Team Sky, Bahrain Merida, all these, Sunweb, all these guys are going at it. And uh, we, you, you just get into the mix of it, like, Oh, what are they racing? Are they racing two in the front, 11 in the back? Are they racing some guys on the road this year? You'll see one big chain ring in the front and 11 in the back. And so then the tooth count like matters. The sprint, the sprint gear is going to be 11 teeth or 10 teeth. The, the mountain gear is going to be 54 teeth. It's going to be a big deal. None of you care, but it's really exciting. And, we, and what are they riding? riding? Are they riding Shimano? Are they riding Shrambu? Are they riding Campagnolo, a brand that started as a wine bottle opener anyway? Like, why are they even in cycling? What's the deal? Are they using electronic shifters? Do they have the sprinter ports? Are they using uh, cable shifting? Are they using disc brakes? If so, how big is the rotor? What kind of calipers are they using? Are they using steel? Are they using ceramic? Like, oh, are they riding 700 by 23 or are they riding 700 by 25? If it rains or it snows, are they going to go 120 PSI? Or are they going to go 100 PSI, 90 PSI? Where are they on that? And none of you care, right? And I just went on for way too long about something that doesn't really matter because, you know, at the end of the day, the Giro d'Italia, the Tour de France, Perry, or, or Paris San Remo, any of these, Milan San Remo, any of these races, the Vuelta a España, none of it matters, all the gearing, because what it's going to come down to is going to come down to one dude, his bike, and who gets food, like food poisoning the least. Like, that's what it's going to come down to. But we as cycling fans and former mechanics or whatever, we have this tendency to overcomplicate things to really get down into it. Like when we were truing wheels or whatever, or, or ooh, the rear derailleur would be like, there are three things you need to know, right? I'm educating you all. On, I told you this was gonna be a lecture, right? Position, limits, tension. That's all you need to know to tune a rear derailleur. But if I'm gonna tell a, a customer about how to tune a derailleur, I'm not gonna say, oh, it's position, limits, tension. I'm going to say the position, I'm going to break that down into 14 steps, and I'm going to talk about the limits, I'm going to talk that down into quarter turns of a screw, and I'm going to talk about uh, p position, limits, and then tension, the, the cable tension to shift your gear, like we say, like butter. 
And then we're going to explain to you that you're gonna, you need to bring your bike back in in about 60 to 100 miles because you're going to stretch that cable. And so then your tension is going to get slack, which is going to throw it off. And then when you're shifting, you're going to shift harder. And then you're going to, anyway, so it doesn't matter. But what we've done is we've overcomplicated it when it should just be a dude and his bike. It should just be a person and their bike. In the same way, throughout history, I think some meaning well, some not so much, we've overcomplicated Christianity. We've made it more difficult by adding these things and, and all these traditions and these, these beliefs that we argue over when it needs to come down to Christ. Where do you stand on Christ? Now, I'm not saying theology doesn't matter. I spent thousands of dollars to get degrees in it, so theology is very important, everybody. It matters. Um, but knowing all of the giant words doesn't. So there needs to be some sort of tension that we walk as Christians between, hey man, I just, I love Jesus. And all of these big monos, multisyllabic and, and Greek and Hebrew and Latin words. Like there needs to be somewhere in between where we're growing in our faith, but we don't necessarily need that, but we're actually growing in our faith. And that's really what Paul hits home for us today in our text. Today we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Some of you might remember the last time I spoke here, I spent 35 minutes talking about two verses, and you'll notice we have 10 today. But you'll also notice I wasn't still going when you guys walked in, so I did go late, just know. So I'm going to try and get through my notes. I'm really excited about this text. It's really refreshing for me. It's really important that I think we as a fellowship of believers, a community of Christ followers, really understand the heart of the matter and um, can really grow in that, and that it's not... Uh, it's not to be complicated or muddied with all this stuff. So if you're already open, page uh, 984, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. You can grab that out. That's the page number you're going to flip to. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, I pray that um, you would slow my words. Lord, that you would help me uh, while being excited not to just start um, speaking too quickly. That this would be a time where we can communicate with each other, that we can grow together in our understanding of you, that we can go deeper in the text together, and that, Lord, above all, we don't get sidetracked by all these plans and all these designs, these philosophies, these vain ideas, these traditions of man, but, Father, that we would come back to the heart, that we would grow our roots deeper, and that we would again check to make sure we are on sure foundation of you and you alone. Let's do your name we pray. So I've summed up these 10 verses into 12 points. And uh, I'm kidding, don't worry. And it's really important that we, we kind of start where, where Paul is. He's, he gives us first kind of a command. And, and the way I wanna, wanna sum this up is that we continue in Christ. In, in verse 6, Paul says this, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And so the first thing I want us to look at is, Therefore, as you received Christ the Lord, so walk in him. My wife reads a different translation than I do. I really liked the way it translated. It says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as your Lord. And so it really hits home what Paul is writing quite well. As you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. 
Now, this is Paul building off of what I think is the thesis or the main point of the book of Colossians, his biggest encouragement. He shows us in, in chapter one, starting in verse nine, he says, and so because of the gospel, because of the minister of Christ, um, since from the day we heard about you, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding for this reason, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So continue in the gospel. The whole point of the letter of Colossians is to say, Christ is enough. Stick with Christ. Continue in Christ. (laughs) But I want us to understand there's a momentum being communicated here. He says, continue in Christ. Just as you received him, so walk in him. Christianity isn't a sit back and relax kind of religion. It isn't just a, oh, just sit in it. We rest in Christ, we grow in Christ, and we walk on the spiritual journey toward an eternity with Christ. A lot of us tend to think of uh, the gospel as like the starting point of our Christian journey or maybe the diving board into the pool of Christianity or the Christian journey. And I want, to, I want us to understand this. The gospel is not the diving board. It's the pool. And so as we venture out a little further into some deeper things, as we maybe dive down a little deeper, as we maybe spend a little more time deeper underneath to understand that it's the gospel that we want to be spending our time in. It's the gospel we want to be swimming deeper in. It's the gospel we want to be enjoyingly floating around in and, and enjoying, maybe splashing each other with the gospel. Oh, I'm soaked in the gospel. Yay! But Paul goes on to give us a couple images of what this could look like. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, and this is how, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Rooted and built up, established in the faith. Paul gives us two images, rooted and built up. One being an organism or organic, this this kind of idea of the plant being rooted, and then the idea of a structure, Founded. There's a foundation idea. And so when I think of foundation and, or being rooted, Paul is not teaching us anything new. He's not coming and bringing to the table, hey, I got this new idea, or hey, there's this underground hipster philosophy kind of thing, or, or there's this new theology I've invented, you should check it out. Paul is echoing the teachings of Scripture. Paul is echoing the teachings of Christ. And so where we see this especially is in the, the founded, rooted and founded is in him, established in the faith, Jesus in Matthew chapter seven is closing out his Sermon on the Mount and he gives this illustration to kind of sum everything together. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, these teachings and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock, the teachings of Christ. What is the rock? Well, you think of Matthew chapter 16 where Christ asks his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, Peter, and he says to you, surely your name is Peter, but I, now you're the rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. The confession of Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God, is the confession upon which Christ will build his church. So the rock here, Christ, his words, his teaching. Notice how he doesn't promise us life's gonna be sunshine and rainbows. 
Everyone who hears and does these words will be like a wise man. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house. Little pig, little pig, let me in. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. So the storm will come, the winds will fall, the rain, the, the, everything is going to work against the house. You're going to feel the pressures of this broken world as we live our life. But if we're founded on the rock, Christ alone, in Christ alone, we can weather the storm because we're built on him, our foundation. But he goes on. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. So we have this option. Do we live our lives sold out on firmly founded and rooted in Christ enduring the storm because we're founded on and in Christ? Or do we choose to live our own life, follow our own way and, and worship our own gods, building our house on sand? And while we may stand for a little while, while we may weather some storms, eventually the great storm of death is going to come and we will not stand unless we're founded on and in Christ. So Paul says being rooted and built up there's another image here that um, I tend to lean toward. I have a, an affinity for plants, not like weeds, but plants. So Molly and I, my wife, we, we planted our garden. And so we're talking about the soil and the containers in which we planted them and how much we water them, root rot, are we burning the roots, all this kind of stuff going on. And, and I think of, when I think of being rooted in Christ, I actually think um, of the Old Testament. And particularly, I think of, of Psalm chapter 1. He opens the book, blessed are you, you don't walk in this way among sinners. You don't sit in this way among scoffers. You don't, you don't lie down in this way among other sinners. But he says this, but this man's delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. It does, its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. Christ in, in John chapter 15, I am the branch, you, or I'm the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me. Apart from me, you will do nothing. There's this idea here. First and foremost, how is he like a tree planted by streams of water? Because his delight, his, his worth, his excitement is found in the law, the words of God. It's always on his mind. Day and night, he's meditating, he's thinking on, I like food too, so I like to say he's marinating in his word. Right? You marinate something well enough, it's going to taste like the marinade. I wish we all tasted like Jesus. Rooted and founded, established in the faith, not moving from the faith. And then he gives us this, abounding in thanksgiving. I like that. There's this characteristic we see here, um, abounding in thanksgiving, as if we're living with the gospel on our mind. We're not talking about one holiday in November where we all have to tolerate our family for the sake of tryptophan, right? What I'm talking about is this lifestyle where when we get up in the morning, it's another day to live in God's grace, Another day to live and enjoy the reality that while I broke a relationship with an almighty, perfect creator, he loves me so much that while I was still a sinner, he sent his son, his one and only son named Jesus, fully God and fully man, to live a perfect life that I couldn't live, to die a gruesome death that I deserve to die, and then to be raised from the dead three days later so that I could have an opportunity at a new life defined by Christ as my Lord abounding in thanksgiving. 
So Paul goes from this encouragement. Hey guys, continue in this. Continue to be rooted. Continue to be founded, right? Our Christian walk is more than, than just kind of this blasé, yeah, Jesus, jump into works idea, right? Because there's no house without a good foundation. The garden is more than seeds. And so Paul is encouraging us, walk in Christ, rooted, founded, built up on this, established in the faith. Here I stand, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And then he gives us, he gives us a warning, and I'm going to turn it from not just a warning, but an encouragement again. He tells us to be captive to nothing but Christ. In verse 8, he says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See to it that no one takes you captive. The Greek word for this is sulagogeo. Eyo, sulagogeo. Thank you for chuckling. Eight eight o'clock didn't didn't even give me that. And we're like, yeah, see what you did there. But it's, it's humorous, and it's difficult for us to say. It's a different language, so we're learning it. Um, the, the actual like, verb form of this would be sulagoge. And what it, what it is is imagine you're in battle, you're fighting, you're focused on your enemy, and suddenly an ambush comes from the side, and you don't see it. And your fellow soldier is engaged to the enemy, turns to sideways, and sees the enemy coming to you. This is what they would yell. This is the equivalent of modern day, look out! Right? So this is the equivalent of don't let them take you captive. Their intention is to make you their slave to the point of death. Look out. Be on your guard. See to it that no one takes you captive. Don't believe the lie that the enemy is docile. Don't be persuaded that your enemy is stagnant. Don't believe that your enemy is lazy. See, he prowls around like a lion, seeking who he may devour. The enemy isn't playing games. He's playing for souls. Like in the words of Doc Holliday, we was playing for blood. (laughs) Oh, right on, okay, okay. Doc Holliday, gunfire, okay, corral, cool. You had a good upbringing. But see to it that no one takes you captive. This term of warfare, how? How are they going to take us captive? By philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. You see, philosophy in and of itself is not bad. But a philosophy that isn't founded on and doesn't drive you deeper into Christ is horribly misleading and deceitful and empty and founded on nothing other than human tradition. See to it that no one takes you captive. Don't fall so in love with knowledge that you miss the source of true knowledge. Don't fall so in love with the epistemological question of what is truth that you miss truth himself. Don't seek to be better simply for the sake of being better. Seek Christ because he alone can truly make you better. So don't be taken captive by anything but Christ. You see, we need to understand that good things become idols when they replace Christ. It's not bad to be good at sports until sports is everything you think about. 
It's not bad to do well in your job until your job is your identity. It's not bad to want to be a good parent to raise your children in the right way, but it becomes an idol when suddenly that's your identity. Don't be taken captive. We have this tendency to think of, of bad things as like, don't become an alcoholic, right? I think we can all agree that. Don't, right? Don't become addicted to drugs. Again, we can all agree, don't. Don't become so enwrapped with being a good parent that you lose sight of Christ as your true identity. Hopefully we should all agree, don't. Don't become so pressured and, and believe that your identity is in being the top of your class and being successful at work that you miss that your identity is actually wrapped up in Christ and Christ alone. It's only by his grace that you can do anything good. Amen. Don't. Look out. Be aware. Don't allow this to take you captive. A guideline question for this that I ask myself, um, I should ask more regularly, I'm giving this to you. How does this help me or others grow deeper in Christ? So how does this help mine or others' relationship with Christ? It's kind of a guiding question for that. See to it, beware, look out that no one takes you captive by these things, tradition of the world, and not according to Christ. He goes on in, uh, in in the next few verses, he says in verse nine, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So don't be captive to all this other stuff. Be captive to Christ. Why? Because in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Moving on, and you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Your nature has been changed from the inside out. You've been filled with Christ. Christ is at work by his spirit to continually change your nature from this slave to all things, this captive to the world so that you can be a slave to Christ. You can be a captive to freedom in him. He's at work. You've been filled. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This understanding, see Paul is attacking a very specific problem with the Colossae church. What's going on is people have come into the church and you've got one camp over here um, saying, yeah, Christ was fully man, but he wasn't fully God. And so while the sacrifice covers part of you, we need to bring in laws and restrictions and throw in circumcision for good measure so that we can actually be wholly saved. And then there's another side over on this side that's saying, no, 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 no. You see, Christ was fully God but he wasn't fully man. And so in his spirit, having died and been resurrected, he actually saves your spirit and that divorces the flesh from the spirit. So the spirit is saved, so don't worry about the body. You can live however you wanna live because your spirit's been saved. And Paul comes searing into the scene in this letter and says, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Christ is fully man and fully God. I spent 35 minutes on this a few weeks ago. So everybody's kind of bracing themselves. Like, don't worry, we're gonna hit this and then we're gonna move on. I'm not gonna, not gonna camp on it that, that long. Fully God, fully man. Fully God, the perfect man for God's necessary sacrifice. Fully God the perfect God to reach down out of heaven and save mankind. So here we have fully God, fully man. And then as a Christian, we've been filled in him who's the head of all rule and authority. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, than your enemy. So if you're rooted and founded in Christ, the enemy brings all these storms, 
but you weather them as you drill deeper into Christ. And notice how it's passive voice here. You, you have been filled in him who is ahead of all rule and authority. This understanding that we didn't fill ourselves. We didn't get this knowledge and then become saved. Christ filled us. We received the action. And then Paul really lays into this, these heresies and really lays into it. It says in verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So now we have this understanding that there's a new sign of a covenant coming in. Circumcision of Christ, this putting off of the flesh as he says. And this isn't done by hands, this is a spiritual act. This is an act that's far greater than anything we've seen before by putting off the body of the flesh with Christ removing it. We were circumcised in Christ. In Genesis chapter 17, there's, um, there's the explanation of circumcision. Um, God says to Abraham in making this covenant, this will be the sign of the covenant with, between me and you and all of your offspring, the circumcision, the male will be circumcised. But you know what he said? This will be the sign of the covenant. That's in uh, Genesis chapter seven, verses 10 and 11. You see that if you're, if you're taking notes. Really, just read one through 14. Make, make your daily devotional on Monday circumcision. It sets the tone for the week. It's great. <laughs> Abounding in Thanksgiving, right? Like, so it, God is talking to Abraham, but then I want you to understand that what that does is that sets a scene because a few books later, as Israel's preparing to go into the land, we have the reiteration of the law, the Deuteronomos, the second law in Deuteronomy. And in chapter 10, God, is, God gives them new tablets of stone, and he's talking about what characterizes them as Israel. And, and in verse um, 16, God is talking again about circumcision. And he says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. This idea that, um, like I said, from the inside out, this this circumcision is, circumcision in the flesh is done on the most intimate part of the man's body. So at the most intimate core of who you are, there's a sign of a covenant you've made with God. And so then God is saying, in your heart, the most intimate part of your personality, your, your being, who you are, your identity, it's marked by a covenant with God. He says it again in Jeremiah chapter four. He says it again in Jeremiah chapter nine, this idea of a, a circumcision, this, this removing of the flesh from your heart so that you can be united in wholeness with God. But get this, again, you're gonna hear this. It's a passive voice. We, it's nothing that we do that does this, that achieves this. The circumcision, this new circumcision in Christ is done by Christ, having been. You were circumcised. You received the action. And then he goes on in verse 12. So you've been circumcised, the circumcision of Christ. Well, how? Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. So you've been buried and you were also raised. So baptism is the sign of the new covenant that you have made with God. So if you've become a Christian, if you're following Christ, you need to get baptized. And I'll tell you right now, 
as an adult getting baptized, you will have significantly less recovery time than if you had to get circumcised. <laughs> right? I saved that one for the Facebook live feed. Right? Uh, I got to recover from that one. But this understanding that as we enter into this new covenant, the sign of the new covenant, this baptism, this physical outliving of this intimate change has happened within us. There's no greater way of telling the world, guys, I have died to myself. I, have, I identify in Christ's burial and resurrection to walk in this new life, this new covenant, this new agreement with God that we've established. At the core, at the most intimate part of who I am, belonging to God, being revealed in this physical way, I can think of no better way of symbolizing that than to be fully immersed in water, raising up with the water symbolizing having been purified, washed clean of your old life, the sin that's so easily entangled, that which separated you from a good, wholesome life with Christ, a right relationship with him, having been cleansed, raised by the power of God to walk in newness of life. If you're a Christian and you've not been baptized, I can't hit this hard enough, get baptized. It's the first step of obedience in following Christ. Well, I'm not ready. Christ didn't wait till you were ready to save you. Praise God. Why are we waiting to take our first step of obedience in life with him? There's no better way to display it. It's your first step in obedience. But get this, we don't baptize ourselves you were baptized. Again, it's this passive voice. You were dead, having killed yourself. So you did that. Congratulations. But God raised you from the dead. You've received the action again. It's nothing that we've done. And I kind of want to hit this because I'm Southern Baptist by choice. I was Southern Baptist before I became a Christian. And now I'm both, believe it or not, and happily so. So I believe baptism is vitally important. Baptism is the first step of obedience. Baptism, if you're, if you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized, just do it. Have I hit that hard enough yet? Do we understand the thrust of what I'm saying here? But I'm, I'm going to say this. Sal baptism is not salvific. Baptism doesn't save you. Because once you believe you have to be baptized to be saved, what other work of man is necessary now? Baptism, just like circumcision, is the sign of the covenant. But just like in, in Israel, if you said you were a Jew and you lived like it, but you weren't circumcised, people would question. So if you say you're a Christian, and, and maybe you live like it, you want to participate in the Christian community, but you haven't been baptized, think about it. It's the sign of the covenant. Why are you willing to accept all the benefits of the covenant, but not the responsibilities of the covenant. And to be honest, baptism is one of the easiest responsibilities of the covenant. But why do we do this? Why does it matter? This baptism, all of this kind of stuff, why, why does it matter? Why do we need to be captive to Christ? Because of this, we've been forgiven in Christ. In verse 13, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, we've been baptized, we've been raised, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of the flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
Let's hit this. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. You see, the only active part you had in your salvation was making it necessary. You who were dead in your flesh and your trespasses. There's a really good picture of this Paul talks about in Ephesians in chapter two. He says this, therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated or foreign from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's what it's like not being a Christian. You may not understand the reality of it, but this is the reality of it. This is the truth, whether you like it or not. At one time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, the people of promise, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But God, in his mercy, his rich love for you, gives you the opportunity and has raised you if you're a Christian from death and seated you in the heavenlies with Christ. You no longer find your identity in yourself and in your sin. You who were dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Raised you up, having forgiven us all our trespasses. God in his grace and his mercy has given us a new life. Well, how? I'm glad you asked. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Your debt has been forgiven. Christ paid it. John chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus says, it is finished. Tetelestai, paid in full. Paid in full. It is finished. Set it aside with its legal demands, nailing it to the cross. Christ paid it all. He filled the unfillable chasm. He bridged the unbridgeable gap. He absorbed the overwhelming wrath for us. And it doesn't just stop there. You see, this is forgiveness. This is, we've been forgiven our debt. Not just sealed, expunged. Done, gone. As far as the east is from the west. You notice he doesn't say north is from the south? Think about it. You can go east, and you're still going east. No matter how far you go, you will always be going east. There's no point at which it becomes, oh, you're heading west. But if you head north long enough, there's a point where then you will be heading south. You will never, once God has truly forgiven you, there's no need to venture back into that, like a dog returning to its vomit. You've been forgiven. You've been seated in the heavenlies. Your identity now is Christ. We've become victorious in Christ. He says in 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, or in it, if your translation says it. We'll get to that. In verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. They have no real power anymore. If you're a Christian, that lion prowls around with no teeth or claws. 
Don't give into it. There's no more power. And there's a difference. Put them to open shame. There's a difference between private shame and public shame. So on the cross, Christ breathes his last breath, gives himself over, and Satan and his cohort sneer at heaven. Where is your power? Where is your authority? We killed your leader. And three days later, Christ raises from the dead by the sheer power of God over victory or over death. And heaven roars back, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Christ lives. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. We have victory over this world in Christ. And it's not just this victory. It's not just a disarming. Put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. God, when he looks to Golgotha, God, when he looks to Calvary, sees victory in Christ. May we in our identity looking to Christ see victory. If we've been born again, if we've been baptized, if we're walking in community with Christ and other Christians, we have victory over this life. We ought walk in it. There are two things I want to talk about now. We have, um, we have cards in the back of the, of the chairs in front of you. If you've been walking by your own strength, building your house and your life on sand, and maybe by God's grace today, you realize like, wait a minute, I've planted my flag where it doesn't belong. I've chosen myself, and God, by his grace, is revealing to you that there's an end to that, and that there's a punishment, a payment for that. The wages of sin, the wages of self-centeredness, the wages of planting our flag on our own behalf is death. And our fall will be great. But you want to pick up your flag, you want to lay it down on the sure foundation of Christ and what he's done for you and live in the victory that he has for you. We have a blue card. It looks like this. And it gives you the option to reach out because you're not saved to live by yourself. God saves you to a community. And simply by filling this out, taking it to somebody in the back at the prayer, um, putting it, taking it to the connections table out there, you have the opportunity to step into the victorious life that Christ wants for you, regardless of storm. And maybe you're a Christian and you've been here for a while and um, maybe this is encouraging you to take the next step. Look for the card that says next steps try and make it easy. You have opportunities here, whether that's to actually say, you know, I'm going to plug into this community. I'm going to own this. I want to take the membership class and really become a part of Olive Branch and make Olive Branch a part of me. You have that opportunity. But just as importantly, right below it, baptism. If you believe yourself to be a Christian, but you haven't been baptized, and hopefully the truth of scripture has communicated to you that if you believe yourself to be a Christian, you should be baptized. You can tick that box you can take it to the connections table and we can get you ready for that first major step of obedience to Christ. Live every day with the gospel before you. May the gospel enrich your conversations. May it define your relationships and may it guide your plans for your life. May Christ and Christ alone be your identity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray before you 
the one on the throne, who is holy, who was and who is and who is to come, who by your great love saved us to a new life by your son. And Father, I pray that these wouldn't just be words spoken on Sunday, but that they'd be lived out Monday through Sunday. Father, I pray for our week to come, that you would fill it with opportunities to be victorious in you, to root and found our identity in you, to establish ourselves in the faith, the trust, the knowledge that it's by you and you alone that we will ever see victory and survival of storms. Would you guide us and direct us in the way that we should go to live obedient lives for you? And it's in your name we pray.